So by the time we get to this point in our services here at Redeemer, um, particularly, well, well, each Lord's Day, we have heard the gospel articulated uh, numerous times. We've heard it articulated in our times of confession, that the grounds of our hope of forgiveness and uh, our, even the ability to repent and exercise faith is grounded in the work and person of Jesus Christ. We speak of confession of sin and forgiveness of sin and atonement in our time of worship and song. And if we are paying at all, any attention at all, during the time of song, we see the gospel so clearly articulated in the lyrics line by line, proving yet again the ground of our hope is singular. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And uh, I want us to appreciate, after articulating the gospel multiple times through the lines of our time together, nearly 30 minutes probably by now that we've been together, and we've been emphasizing and focusing, if, again, we've been at all paying attention on the person and work of Jesus Christ as the grounds, not a grounds, one among a number, but the grounds of our confidence, the grounds of our hope, the grounds of substitution, the grounds of justification, the grounds of salvation is singular. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ. But I want us then, as we move to our time of articulation through the text, is to appreciate, I I want you by that to appreciate the awesome responsibility and, and I, I really mean it, and, and I hope that you see it laid out for you very clearly here in, the, in our next few moments. But to really appreciate the awesome responsibility that we, the church of Jesus Christ, have in maintaining the gospel. And I want to challenge you to think, and I won't bring this up again, so I'm just providing you a mental hook, to think of your own contributions toward how you steward, how you promote, how you protect the gospel. Because when we speak of protecting and maintaining the gospel, we can often think of the ministers. Indeed, it is our job, no doubt. But I'm speaking of we, the church, both the big church, all the adults gathered, and the little church, your home, where dad preaches, mom teaches, and children listen. How is your little church? How do you perceive the awesome weight that you do have as a Christian, as a Christ follower, to maintain the gospel? Paul speaks of the church gathered, the church of Jesus Christ. He calls the household of God and further describes that to Timothy as the pillar and buttress of truth. That's what the church is. It's not a byproduct of what we could be. It's what we are. The church, the organism, is the pillar and buttress of truth. What an awesome responsibility we possess. I've mentioned this before a few weeks ago, and I mentioned something similar years ago when we were going through the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Regarding generational transmission of the gospel, I hope you receive it well and ponder it, even from big church 
to little church. At the first generation is typically that generation of conversion, that generation who is taught, catechized. The generation who patiently learns and grows to know the gospel. If you were to ask them many times, a new convert, through a little bit of discipleship, what the gospel is, they know it very clearly. They understand the depravity they were rescued from. They lay hold of it as that piece of soul-filled nourishment they need. But over time, there can be a problem. The next generation, that is the one that's up next, right after or within the stewardship of that first, they begin to assume it. It's simply the plaque on the wall, the verse card hung on the door. It's the oxygen we breathe. It's the assumption we have. By the time we move from those who were taught and know to those who assume, we finally find ourselves in a third generational context where the gospel is altogether lost. For one to know, the other to assume, leaves a third to lose. I want us to appreciate, again, the awesome responsibility we, the church of Jesus Christ, have to maintain gospel integrity. And it is this sense of urgency and clarity that Paul comes to us in the church of Galatia with in Galatians chapter 1. Typically, you'll notice this, and if you've read through your New Testament, or you've read portions of Pauline epistles, or you've taken a Bible study class on them, typically you know that following introduction that we had last week, we handled verses 1 through 5 last week, and what is, what is predictable about Pauline epistles after we get a brief introduction? Well, often Paul provides a thanksgiving so, so, so I'm introducing myself to you. I'm Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, in various verbiage that he adds to that rhetorically. And then he says, and then he directs his attention to the church that he's beginning to write his epistle to, and he gives a thanksgiving or an expression of gratitude for that church, for those people, and not simply because of their virtue, but because the evident work of God among them. It's clear. I, I, I'm writing to you, beloved Paul, the apostle and sent of God, rescued myself. And to you, I offer thanksgiving in prayer and so on and so forth because of God's work among you. Take Ephesians, for instance. We won't turn there. I'll simply cite for you two of them. Well, a third. In Ephesians, for instance, Paul writes, right after a brief introduction, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. The very next line after a word of introduction. Likewise, to those in Philippians, he writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Every time I think of you, as a church, as the people of God gathered, I give thanks. He goes on to say, always. Listen to how he describes his relation to the church. Always, in every prayer of mine, I give thanks for you. Making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I've spoken about this a couple of different times with a few ladies uh, in our church recently going through ladies' Bible study in 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonians. 
and I think among the ladies as well as they've shared with me some of the interesting pieces, particularly after having read publicly the book of Galatians and then jumping into the first week of First Thessalonians study, the great contrast and speech that exists between what Paul says in his approach to the church of Galatia and how he approaches the church in Thessalonica. I'll give you a small little bit and then we'll keep moving on but it's important for us to note the tone shift and change in Galatia. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, I read for you, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? What is it? What is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You. The faithful church. For you are our glory and our joy. Think about it. Paul speaking of a church as his greatest crown and his greatest joy and his hope at Christ's return to see them gathered to him. How much more bitter does that make the turn of Galatia? Because the scene here in Galatians is much different. After the lovely introductions and words of thanksgiving and love spread to the churches, the scene here in Galatians is much more like the scene of Exodus 32. You recall what that scene is, and I'm going to draw a brief parallel between the scene here in Galatians and the church of the Old Covenant in Exodus 32. You know what that text is. It's the golden calf incident. I'm not here saying that for sure I know that this incident is on Paul's mind. When he speaks, he certainly doesn't reference it. But if we read both texts together, a picture of the church emerges that warns us as a church this morning. The incident of Exodus 32 and Galatians 1 are eerily similar. There's a lesson to be learned here. You remember when Moses' leadership And you can go back to that text. We don't have time to walk through all bits and parts and pieces of Exodus 32. But I want you to see the big picture and how they speak to the weakness of the church. And herein lies the warning. Moses' leadership, you recall, was not on site, so to speak. He was gathered up, right? And he was going up to ascend Sinai in order to fellowship, commune with God, and to receive the law. Then he would bring back down, he would transmit to the people of God as they wait. So also with Paul in Galatia, his leadership has been removed for a season of time. You remember as the church planter, he's there, he established and particularized these congregations into roles of leadership, setting those in charge who would govern themselves, and then he corresponds from, yes, distance. 
But as Moses ascended, you recall, as here with Paul in Galatia, the church's lack of confidence. And for many, their lack of true faith was exposed. You have both in Galatia, and we'll get to some of that next week. You have those whose faith has proved to be not genuine. And you have those in the congregation who are simply lacking confidence. Paul speaks to both. Notice the picture in your, mo- a picture in your mind of, of Exodus, and then, and, and then bring that picture of Exodus, where Moses is now removed. He's receiving instruction. In Israel, that is, the people of God under the Old Covenant, are kind of somewhat left, in their sense, as exposed. There's those who lack confidence, and then there's those who are with them who lack faith, genuine faith. So also here in Galatia, look at verse 6 and keep that picture in your mind. As Paul speaks here also, he says in verse 6, I am astonished that as we spoke last week, I am simply blown away. You notice he is not providing them with, well, I kind of understand it. Times are complex, nuance is needed. He's saying, I'm astonished. What I want to draw your attention to just very quickly is to notice, well, what he says there. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you. I want you to key in on the thought of quickness. The idea of desertion and the idea of being astonished. Paul's astonished that you, not only that you are deserting, but I want you to key in on you are deserting so quickly. It's a quick turnabout. This is similar to God's indictment to Israel in Exodus 32, verse 7 and 8. Listen to what the Lord, that is God, says to Moses regarding Israel in this same set of circumstance. Lacking leadership, lacking confidence and exposing a lack of genuine faith. Exodus 32, verse 7 and 8. God says to Moses, Go down. Notice the distancing. Listen to the language of the text. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now again, you think, well, doesn't that take a long time? How long was Moses gone? How is it that the people of God can be drawn out of Egypt? How is it that they can be brought out with a mighty and outstretched arm? Evidences of all of the power of the gospel, the blood of Christ upon a doorpost, be drawn out as God's people, be so thereby nourished and corrupt themselves. I thought it's a long slide. 40 days. This is what God says to them, to Moses. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. The text continues. They have turned aside quickly. 
out of the way that I have commanded them. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Martin Luther makes comment here about the quickness of turnabout. He says, quote, Paul had established churches in Galatia with painstaking care. And we know this if we read the book of Acts. It's not something unique to Luther as he articulates it to make it more dramatic. We know this is the case if we read the account in the book of Acts. Paul had established churches in Galatia with painstaking care. Yet no sooner had he set his foot out of the door, as the saying goes, then the false apostles overthrew some of them. And this fall brought on great ruin in the churches of Galatia. And to unite this with Paul's pastoral heart that I read for you in 1 Thessalonians, Luther adds, this loss so sudden and so great was undoubtedly bitterer for the apostle than death itself. End quote. I think it's fair to say that this is absolutely right. You speak of Paul's language for his own people in Romans. If I were even able to consider myself accursed for their sake, I would. Oh, I thank, I thank God for all of you every day, all of my prayers constantly. How he speaks of them as, as a mother, as a nursing mother to those at Thessalonica. And that he speaks of, I was torn away from you. Yes, physically, but not spiritually, not in heart, only in place. And to have that same consistent heart emerge time and time again in his, in his epistles to the churches, in his correspondence to the churches here, the folks at Galatia have turned about. And they have done it so quickly. Also similar to the golden calf incident, that once again I draw the parallel account because, as you'll see just in a moment as I exhort us, we are not altogether different. There's an emergent story here of how we, the people of God, steward the gospel entrusted to us. Go down there to your people. They have corrupted themselves. I've only been gone a little while. Yes, it's happened very quickly. I am astonished that you're deserting him so Quickly. Another similarity, as I said, to the golden calf incident are Paul's words of judgment. In this, we too, the church, needs to take note of the language of judgment. Notice verse 8 as Paul speaks. Well, verse 6, so quickly deserting him who called you. And then jump down to verse 8. It's happening so quickly, but even if we, as we spoke last week, if it was me, even we, the apostles, the brothers who are with me, even if we or an angel even from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, notice the word of judgment. Let this individual be accursed. 
Do you see the severity, the awesomeness of our stewardship? The labor that the big church and the little church needs to perform in the maintenance, in the articulation, in the transmission of the gospel. It's not a thing indifferent. We're called to action. Let this person be accursed, verse 9, as we have said before, in case you did not hear it. So now I say again, if anyone, it doesn't matter their popularity, it doesn't matter their, their appearance, it doesn't matter their credentialing. I, I'm saying if anyone is preaching to you a gospel, gospel contrary to the one you have received, by apostolic consensus, let that person be accursed. God also, Paul receiving this indictment from our Lord, building on the language of Exodus 32, as God says to Moses regarding Israel down at the bottom of the mountain, he says to Moses in the same text, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Right? Because roughly in a 40-day sketch, they have decided to forsake the God who drove them out, delivered them with an outstretched arm, made promise and labored before them to set the promises of God and Christ before them. And they have so quickly, in that period of time, said, hey, I think Moses left. Let's just make a God of our own fashion to worship. Who drove you out? Well, it's neither here nor there at this point in time. This calf can. Collectively, this seems to be the will of the people, a good idea. And Aaron, minister on duty, acquiesces. So God says to Moses, as this is occurring, go down there. And then he adds to it, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone. This is the language similar to what Paul adopts here in the approach to those who corrupt and forsake the gospel. He says, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. So also Paul, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you already, let him be accursed that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received. Indeed, let him be accursed. But again, as we read of such unfaithfulness to the gospel, quickly deserting, 
Well, Paul's been gone a season of time now. Well, Moses, we don't know if he's even going to come back. Again, as we read of such unfaithfulness to the gospel, we should be reminded that we are not altogether different. We are not more sophisticated than they. We have better auxiliary ministries. Too much discipleship going on here. We're not like them. We don't share in the same feet of clay. We don't have the same weaknesses. We're not carried about by all the same challenges. Oh, but the text of Scripture is a story for us, a story for our instruction. We are as they. We bear in our bodies the same weaknesses. We have in our constitutions the same challenges. We have varying but similar personalities. We share in the same weakness. I mean, if we are honest with ourselves, that is individually, daily, I think by fair judgment, you would express the same. And notice about yourself that daily in your own experience, you sense and even prove how difficult it really is to not only acquire a steadfast faith, one that has deep roots and is resilient, but also how difficult it is to keep it. I love Lord's Day. I do. I think if I ever fell out of ministry by egregious actions, or if I somehow found myself outside for some who knows what reason, that's not any way in my pathway, so I'm not looking. Even if you want to try to get rid of me, you're going to have to run me out hard. Uh, um, but I, I've said this to others, and I really mean it. I, I think that in our family as well. Um, I hammer on Lord's Day, and I hammer you all about attending it. Um, I think it's important, and we can argue that for another time. I've argued it a million times, but I'm always up for arguing it. So it's, 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 it's important, go to church. But, but I'd say, to me, go to church. This is something, that, were I outside, I still wouldn't be like, well, I did church for a while, and I spoke a lot at a church. In fact, I was even a pastor, but that was, you know, a job. I'm now living my life like everybody else. For me, the organism of the church still nourishes me, I need it far more than it needs me in capacity of minister. I, I have to have the preaching of the word in my life. I have to have, like you, as we share, I may serve you, but I eat with you, that same table. And I share in that same baptism. When I think back and I see someone being baptized, I think back to my own baptism and how that marked me for spiritual possession. I bring that up to my own conscience when I'm battling sin as well. So again, we all struggle to maintain, to establish a steadfast faith in discipleship and to persevere in keeping it with, as we sang a few moments ago, or I think it was the catechism, where we said our threefold enemy, the devil, the world, and the flesh. Just as Israel in Exodus was burdened by it, The church in Galatia is burdened by it, so the church at Redeemer can so easily be burdened by it. Again, we are here warned across both 
Old Testament and New Testament, the entire canon speaks to you and I about how quickly and easily a church that is established and gained by great labor can be overthrown. I think of it for a moment. You know, liberal Protestantism, just to kind of uh, maybe throw stones through our own windows. Liberal Protestantism really kind of really began as a real project in the 20s. What are we, so we're approaching 2020. So that would be roughly about a 100-year sketch of church history that liberalism has wreaked, the kind of havoc that it has wreaked. That, that mainline established magisterial denominations are continuing on a shrinking, a forever shrinking project, becoming more and more increasingly irrelevant. How quickly has that happened? Maybe you'd say, man, that's a long stretch. It's really not, to be fair. 100 years is not a long time. Okay, so it's not 40 days. But that's not a long stretch of time. That's why Paul says, I'm astonished that it's happening so quickly. Same with God as he indicts his people in Exodus. They have turned so quickly. I would push the application one step further. As I've said a couple of times already this morning, not only how is the big church doing in the preservation and the stewardship of maintaining the gospel that's been delivered to us, but how is, again, as I say, the little church in your home? If it's true that a church with many eyes, many gifts, many hands at work within it, gained by great labor and much energy and effort can be so quickly and easily overthrown. How much more quickly and easily can what is established and gained by great labor in your home be overthrown? Just as ministers and those in attendance at the corporate church, or as we might call it, the big church, can't afford naivety, Neither can parents. Who are the greatest influencers in your child's life? I would urge you, as dad is preaching and mom is teaching and children are listening, how quickly and easily what is established and gained by great labor can be overthrown. This is the urgency of the canon of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. But I do want to press one step further and then we'll be done. Uh, Don't get confused. It's not just a sentence. It's a few more minutes. And that is, if you notice that abandoning the gospel is abandoning more than a mere announcement. Notice verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting. And notice the object of that desertion. It's not just an announcement. It's a person. It's not just like a church of gathered people. It's a person. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. You know, the the Father, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. You see... 
turning to a different gospel announcement is a desertion of Christ himself who called you. It is as though we sit here and say, I'm thinking of it myself in terms of calling, and we'll speak a little bit about this next week, but the idea that Jesus, our Lord, would say, Adam, come here. And I would say, no, I'm going over here. Think of it. Again, Paul is referring first and foremost, and we'll handle the rest of it next week, but he is thinking first here of their external calling. That is, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. How is it that Christ has called them? Well, first, he has called them through the preaching of the word. That is, Christ has been held out to all of them through the preaching of the gospel of good news. The word of grace, forgiveness. This is what we call the free offer of the gospel. It's what I'm doing now. It's what we've done since we began the service. The public proclamation of the free offer of the gospel. He is offered to you freely. And Paul is reminding them, this is where I'll close with you. Paul is reminding them, whether it is those who are in Exodus, or it is those who are in Galatia, or it is those who are here at Redeemer, right here, right now. Paul is reminding you that those who pay no attention to this calling, those who disregard the call of the gospel as he is freely offered to you, place themselves in a highly culpable position before God. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. As we, the church, gather this morning and and, in charitable judgment, all in the hearing have heard and received the gospel. Please help us to maintain the gospel. To be well aware and have heightened senses of how quickly and easily we will forfeit the gospel in a number of different ways, in a number of different sins and weaknesses. Help us to be honest about that. To not be proud as a church who could never do that. 
But let us ask for your grace and power to not do that. I think of every home that is here that you also would make the little church immensely powerful and highly energetic in the promotion and maintenance of the gospel. Help us to guard our homes, guard our families, and guard the church of Jesus Christ that we would together have a steadfast faith and keep it. We pray all this in your name, for we are wholly dependent upon you, our Lord, to perform it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.